0: Great.
1: Well, welcome. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight, and mostly because I've got a group of people who are going to bring this whole subject to life here. So uh, just as Jody said, to put this in context, for those of you who have not been here, this is going to work as a standalone session, but it does follow what we talked about in the perfect pitch, was how you fit all this together in kind of a business plan uh, and a pitch that you could take to VCs, for example. And it builds on the value proposition concepts, things like, for example, the gain pain ratio, for those who were here for that. And if you weren't, all of this stuff is available on the website at mjscock.com under Startup Secrets. So you can find all that uh, prior material there. And we also, if you remember last time, talked a little bit about company formation and how, obviously, you go about building a team that can actually take the kinds of value propositions that you're building and products and services to market. And so today we'll be focusing on the piece that I think often gets dropped too far down the stack, which is business model, and it turns out I think this is as important as any subject uh, of the five in the series, and is most often overlooked. So, I'm excited about presenting it, and um, I'm excited to have some examples today that will bring it to life. But what I think doesn't count, so I want to make sure you uh, do the following, which is promise to engage if you don't understand a concept, or if there's something that you want feedback on, or if you're shy about doing it in a big room like this with a large audience, that's no problem, then just do so either in person afterwards uh, or feel free to throw your comments and questions up on the website too. We'd be delighted to engage with you, whatever makes sense to you. Now the one thing I will say is that the go-to-market strategy which comes next is sort of the other side of the coin of business model, because you sort of can't define a business model without thinking about your go-to-market strategy. And it also goes hand-in-hand with the value proposition too. So um, for those of you who are trying to put this all together, I highly recommend the next session as an adjunct to this. I think it'll make a lot more sense to you in that, in that context. But with that said, let me make the introductions. Uh, so tonight we have um, three companies who are presenting uh, in the main part of the presentation. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce Don Dodge from Google. So Don is a longtime industry friend and somebody who actually really did an amazing thing, which was to uh, make a huge shift in his career from uh, being in the, in the developer world with Microsoft to literally Uh, becoming the exact same role in Google. So he's seen both sides of a big business model transition, which is why I wanted him to be here tonight. And I think he'll give you some great examples of that. Uh, We also have a couple of startups uh, at different stages. So we have Acquia here. And I'd just like to introduce Mary and Dries. So Mary is our CFO, and uh, she'll be talking about some of the finer points of the business model. And Dries is actually the founder of Drupal, the open source project behind uh, the Acquia company. And so he'll talk a little bit about uh, what open source brings uh, to the business model and why it's such a great example of how you can be disruptive. So we're very excited to have uh, you both here. Thank you for coming. I like this. We have an audience that claps beforehand. So, you know, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) Very excited about that. Um, And then as people have continued to tell me it's important to have not-for-profit examples because I know that there are a number of you who are doing not-for-profit uh, kinds of ventures we 've actually got um, one who 's going to present tonight, uh, if you can get here, and that 's Chuck Kane from one Laptop a child he 's actually teaching at MIT tonight. Um, but he 's going to also join to talk a little bit about demandware because uh, unfortunately our CFO who was supposed to be here tonight has been called for actually for great reason to uh, spend some uh, an evening with the bankers. but um, i 'll cover demandware and Chuck can help me out with that because he 's on the board with me there. But his other role here will be to talk about One Laptop a Child, which, for those of you who don't know, is a fantastic not-for-profit initiative to get IT spread to the third world. And then um, Alok has very kindly continued to do great work on the DFA example that we've shared in previous workshops. And so those of you who want to follow that, he's going to put some slides together, which we'll put up on the website, which will give you a follow-on example to how they're building their business model, again, in a not-for-profit way. So I think we'll have a pretty rich Uh, tapestry of examples tonight, uh, and I'll include some from my own background to try to bring this to life. And as I've said to you uh, all along the way, this is about trying to give you some unfair competitive advantage uh, as a startup, because when I look back 30 years ago, it's all the things that I wish somebody told me that we're trying to bring to the fore here. So if this doesn't feel practical enough, raise your hand and ask the questions, because we want to make sure this is down to earth. This, This is all about making it practical for you. So let's jump in. Our agenda for tonight is four basic things. The first thing I want to do is find a disruptive business model for you. So I will not be happy if you walk out of here thinking, okay, my business model is just a me too business model. That is a lost opportunity for you as a startup. The second thing I want you to do is to walk out of here understanding what your core differentiation is. In other words, what is at the absolute core of your value proposition that you can use as differentiation? For those of you who weren't here in the value proposition session, that's OK. We'll talk about it at least in concept tonight and in terms of how you use that in the business model. And then I'm going to bring in two very simple ideas. One is how you'll multiply your va- value, and the other is how you'll leverage it. And I think mostly that can be done with innovation but in some instances, by the way, that innovation is not technical and so I'm going to bring some examples out that are purely business oriented because I'm often amazed at how many entrepreneurs are focused on purely the technology and trying to create that differentiation. And that's a lot of what the session's about, is making, you sh- uh, making it obvious to you why the business model can actually be disruptive. And then I've actually um, enhanced this since we last gave it here because last year I heard a lot of people say to me, well, what's the impact that a, a great business model makes? And It actually makes impacts in lots of ways, but startups in the end uh, and founders often ask the very basic question which is, but how do I build something really valuable? How do I have the next Google or the next Acquia or the next Demandware or whatever it might be? And so we're going to talk about that tonight. I've actually gone to Goldman Sachs and done some work with them to pull out some of the statistics that they have on a very broad basis. And I'm going to bring those into uh, focus tonight and put more of them up on the website for those of you who want to get into that too. And uh, when you get to the end of this, I hope that what you will have is at least a taster for what it takes to go and build a business model. There's a lot of material out on the web about how do you build business models. This is not trying to replace that. It's trying to get you to think about as a startup and trying to get it into a framework that will get you thinking about it for how you could make an impact with your business model. So what do people typically talk about when they're uh, creating a business model? They really usually mean, how do you make money? That is a part of it, that's sort of the end result. But I would describe it as the end result of doing three things well. It's how you create your products and services, how you deliver them, and how you harness the value. And that's really what we're gonna talk a little bit about tonight, is how you might go about creating those uh, different aspects of your business model. But as I said, we're startups, so I don't wanna get anything other than creative here about how we do this. And the first thing I wanna remind you is that the best business models are probably not yet invented. Why do I say that? Well, when I started in business 30 years ago, there were probably four or five basic business models. People looked at revenue and they looked at cost of goods and they looked at expenses and they looked at the bottom line. And they probably focused a little bit on other things like cash flow and receivables and things like that. But fundamentally, we had really simple business models. Fast forward, obviously, today, there are many, many business models. I mean, just to be clear, I thought about creating a list on the web and if you have an interest uh, in that, I will create one for you. Uh, because I certainly see tons and tons and tons but the point is that each and every one that I see has some nuance that in potential terms has the capability to make an impact and a disruption so let's talk about that disruption first of all why is it important well when you're thinking about what you do in building your business wouldn't it be great if you could get an advantage out of a faster time to market with your product or service obviously one of the biggest challenges for startups is how do you get return on your cash quickly because you're always resource limited. So that's important. It also turns out if you get a great business model that's very frictionless, it'll help your market adoption. It'll help people buy your products and services more simply. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And ultimately, I- even if you're a not-for-profit organization, you've got to find a way to make this business model profitable or sustainable because otherwise you're going to be out of business. So it's very fundamental. It's not like this is an afterthought that you can think about as a you know maybe I'll, I'll think about my business model. And then founders always challenged me on, yeah, but why do I care as a founder? Why, you know, why do I have to think about this right from the get go? And, and I'm going to try to bring it right down to the core of this. This is your spend. If you don't get your business model right, you'll spend on the wrong things. That has a huge impact on your cash efficiency. And we're all about, obviously, trying to help entrepreneurs spend as little as they need so that you can keep as much of your company, your ownership, uh, for yourself, and ultimately end up with a highly valuable asset, a business that is sustainable. So, This is really directly, tangibly worth you taking time on, because it is your venture. And when you get a business model that works, you'll end up keeping more of it, and it'll be more valuable. So I hope that connects the dots for you. And by the end of tonight, I want to make sure that you can actually get a sense of how you should go about this. The other thing I want to put in context here is that you can't just think about this in isolation. Obviously, if you um, have a disruptive business model, that's great. But why not have a disruptive technology that feeds a direct, uh, disruptive business model, and then for the next session, that helps you attack a new market with an innovative go-to-market model? If you can do that, you'll have the perfect storm. And that's really what I'm trying to help each of you find is your own perfect storm for how you can be uniquely effective in bringing your product or service to market. So in the business model context, I want you to do something right off the bat, and that is throw away any preconceptions you had about what it is that you're bringing to market as a product and think about what it is you're doing to build a business. And if you can start by changing the game and rewriting the rules and causing an innovator's dilemma, for those of you who haven't followed Clayton Christensen, it's just doing something that somebody else can't follow, but do it with your business model, then we're starting to play in the right way. And what I mean by this is as simple as this. If you come into a marketplace and you follow the same rules that somebody else has about how they package and price their product and who they distribute it through, obviously, you are going to be beholden to matching their price or figuring out how to get some more time from that uh, channel, et cetera. And you'll always be playing by their rules. And startups usually aren't the first companies in a market. In some cases, they are their creating market, and that's great. But if they're not, this becomes even more important. So I really encourage you to, st- to stop and think about, how could you do this? How could you rewrite the rules? How could you create a completely different paradigm that other people have to follow? Because at that point, it becomes other people's challenge to adopt your rules, and you're in control of the game, which is just the, the kind of place you want to go. So of course, I challenge myself to bring an example up at this point, And um, I'm also going to date myself by doing it. And I won't go into this in too much detail, because I've covered it in previous classes. But I'll put this example up on the web. My example is working with Symantec about 20 years ago. Um, Symantec created a product called Symantec Antivirus for the Mac. Well, back then, there weren't really many viruses for the Mac, believe it or not. I mean, to give you a sense of it, that you could have counted them in you know, less than 100. And you probably had you know, one coming up every quarter or so that was only significance and a few other minor ones. Fast forward, of course, to today, there are thousands, tens of thousands of viruses. But what was interesting was, when we moved on to the PC, we had a very typical discussion in the product marketing group. We said, OK, well, we've got a PC product. You know, we already are known for our antivirus solution on the Mac. Why don't we just launch it exactly the same way? We're all out through the same channels, et cetera. But thank God we stopped and said, well, wait a second. What are we learning about this marketplace? We're learning that actually, uh, this is not a business that is really about the software of scanning for viruses. It's actually a business about defending the data and information on your PC or your Mac. And what really people are concerned about is having a subscription service that keeps that data uh, protected against new viruses. And so what happened was really interesting. We introduced the, the products in a completely different way. The PC product got introduced as a subscription service. In particular, we gave away the software. Why? Because obviously, without the software on everybody's machines, we had no basis to send the updated virus definitions to anybody. And what we realized was that that was the opportunity for people to actually get the value. In other words, whenever a new virus came out, to instantly be able to download it and know they're protected was the value. And that was something that was coming on such a fast pace that people didn't want to buy it like software once a year and upgrade it once a year. They wanted it instantly updated. Downloaded from the web would have been nice, except we didn't have that in those days. Uh, But they still were willing to pay for it uh, in that way as a subscription and I will tell you without you know going through the entire um, Case study which again, I'll put on the web. It was game-changing for the company and if you want to look back at Symantec's history at what turned that company from being an interesting company to being a Market leader this was it and it wasn't the technology. It was the business model and to this day a big part of Symantec's success emanates from their having created the subscription service, where they gave away the software and started charging for the virus uh, subscriptions. OK, so that was kind of a technology example, but obviously a different way of selling technology. I then challenged myself to say, you know, what are the results from this and how could you think about this? Well, in the end, what I really want you to try to think about is how this is an example of flipping the model on its head and creating a, what turned out to be very predictable, because now it was subscription-based uh, business model. That caught the competitors completely off guard. And it did, because we created a, di- a dilemma for them, just the way I was saying, you know, you can rewrite the rules. The competitors were still selling products through distribution channels and trying to charge for software. So now we were competing on, com- competing on completely different rules for them. We were saying, no, the software is free. And, uh, you know, you can start buying it, uh, obviously, as a solution. And the great thing about this was the customers actually saw it the way we were trying to market it too. And we ended up launching something called the Data Security Campaign. Uh, my investors at the time were a little bit uh, nervous about this, because we spent a lot, lot of money, I like millions, on going to, to market through major advertising in, in major newspapers. Because we really believed that this was what customers wanted to, to, to get, was actually security around their data, not antivirus software or whatever. And it met their need more effectively. And then the last piece of it that was exciting was it caused us to actually learn something for the rest of our product range. So here's the statistic. Um, We would typically sell 1.5 products per customer. So in other words, if you averaged it out, we didn't sell two products per customer uh, of the Symantec range. We sold about one and a half. Doesn't sound like a very uh, appealing number for the person who only got that half of a product. But the point here is that you were getting about 50% uplift on the base product you sold. So we had many products. Norton Utilities was one of them. We had Norton Backup and many other things. So that 50% uplift was nice, but one of my sales guys, and I have to give him credit for this, said, well, wait a second, if we're selling data security and people are actually buying from us uh, in this broad way now, we're effectively getting the platform adopted everywhere, what if we actually made a data security bundle and we packaged everything together and we said, okay, you can buy that bundle for, guess what, 50% more. Well, it turns out that what happened was people were willing to pay a lot more than that. Once they started to see the value of all the products together as a complete data security solution, we actually ended up selling at 160% uplift, so 2.6x. Uh, so 2.6 products per customer were sold. So we, sh- we learned from this shift that actually customers were really interested in data security. And then we learned again and bundled products together and ended up getting another uplift from it. And it was game changing for the company. It literally caused our revenues to just spike dramatically and for us to put a couple of companies like PC Tools out of business, which you know, wasn't a minor deal at the time, because they were pretty similar competitors to us. So it's exciting to see this. And I bring it to life because this is what I'm hoping you guys will find when you think about your business models. Any questions on that one before I move on? Yeah, go ahead. Interesting, but isn't it, once you have it, I don't see a barrier to it, isn't it fairly easy for um, competitors X, Y, and Z to do the same thing? Well, it it would be if they weren't reliant on all the models that they had in the past. So for example, if you've been selling software at very high margin, and you've had a two-tier distribution channel, which is what used to exist then, so we sold it to distributors, they sold it to to, uh, retailers. Yeah, they were very stuck in that channel, right? Uh, and they had their salespeople on commission for it. And they had all their incentives and everything else based around it. So you had a lot of things that were effectively the legacy of that old model, which other people basically had to dismantle to follow us. It's expensive to do that. And, and you know Don's going to talk about how Google played this, this card in a second. But it was extremely effective uh, at changing the game. And what's important in this last piece is, yes, they could have come along and started to attack us on just the core products. But by then, we had already reached tremendous penetration by giving away our software. So we effectively already had the customer. We'd done the customer acquisition with the virus software that we'd given away for free. Now they were trusting us because they were seeing how well we were doing with that. And they were saying, OK, if we trust them with virus definitions, why wouldn't we trust them with backup and with utilities that do things like disk repair, et cetera? Does that make sense? So not to say, by the way, it, it was you know, impenetrable defense, but it turned out to be the game changer in the industry and, and the tipping point for us. Okay. The next example is a pure business example. And I particularly picked this because this goes to the point of you don't have to have a technology disruption to be disruptive. So what was going on in the marketplace uh, was that you were seeing a lot of great software publishers develop products in the US for the PC marketplace. And they would come over to Europe, where I was at the time, and they would basically put it into this two-tier distribution channel, and they'd (coughs) expect that the company would be successful. Sounds great, except that. The two fundamental problems. Number one is distributors don't sell products. They distribute them. Uh, so there's a lot of sales and marketing and, and uh, so forth that's needed behind that. The second thing is that the software business was relatively young at that stage. So believe it or not, Symantec, now a multi-billion dollar company, was only about a $20, $25 million dollar company at the time. You know, Even in today's dollars, that's still a small company. And if you took that and you went to any market in Europe, which is roughly a tenth the size, say, Europe, um, you know, split, thinking about Germany, for example, might be 12 or 15 percent, but say the UK about 10 percent, you ended up with a business that at max was about two and a half million in relative potential. So not a large amount of money didn't give you critical mass to do any of the marketing or distribution or service or support. So what I did was to create a company that became the critical mass of multiple publishers that was able to put the right quality of management, marketing, distribution, even translation, localization, and so forth in place behind a series of companies, each of which would benefit from the economies of scale of having that access. So in other words, just to really put it in the simplest of senses, if I'd already sell- sold to Royal Dutch Shell, which is a huge buyer of uh, personal computer software, I already had the relationships to that account. And so if I brought one product in, and they trusted me, and they had that relationship, they'd trust me to bring in another product. And so the cost of customer acquisition was lower, And our, obviously, ability to to sell and support was much more effective. And that's what we did. And um, then we put in a really interesting business model behind it. We found a way to make uh, it possible for any of the publishers that we brought over, such as Symantec, to buy us back when we became profitable. Because it's actually very expensive to build a European uh, business to start off with. And many of these companies were trying to go public. Symantec was a good example. They weren't yet public at that time. And so they didn't want the balance sheet expense of going and building a sales force in Europe, building management teams, et cetera. We took that expense and we said, look, when we become profitable, you can acquire us on an anti-dilutive basis, which basically meant that it would immediately be hitting their bottom line uh, in a profitable way and would add to their value. So they'd effectively forego the cash dip, uh, uh, and the profit dip associated with building the business. But when it became profitable, they'd acquire it. And then the way they acquired it was non-dilutive. So, They would add to their value uh, on an earnings per share basis and therefore their overall value as a business right away So it was like a win-win everybody's uh, uh, gained from it the publisher gained from it by gaining access to that marketplace in a very effective um, Accelerated way the customer gained from it by having a local organization that a much more comprehensive job of bringing the products to market In a translated and supported way and ultimately obviously our investors uh, benefited too and um, even though the, the amount of paperwork that went behind that acquisition is sort of sitting as two huge Bibles on my uh, shelf these days as a reminder of it, that work and that planning of everything in the business model paid off to the extent that, uh, if I, I categorize it for you, we had a 97x return as shareholders uh, for the, the first investors in, in uh, that European software publishing business. So everybody wa- won in it. and. What I want to point out about it is that there was really nothing in the technology uh, side of the balance sheet on this model. I mean, we, we weren't building anything. We were actually just finding ways to get economies of scale uh, in, as I said, management, marketing, distribution, etc. We also did something clever in the time. I don't think you can do this anymore. Uh, we had brought a tax break into play through pooling of interests, which used to allow you to, to have a, an effective write-off. And we were effectively time-shifting expense from the publisher in the US. Uh, to our balance sheet and allowing them to, to buy it back when it was accretive to them. Nothing to do with technology, but an extremely effective um, way to build a business that created tremendous value actually for everybody. So I'm not saying this is a great example that you should all rush off and do. It's just an example that, that I wanted to pull out from my past to get you thinking about this in a non-technical way. So what are some sample models that are up to date that are today that you might want to think about? And how can you start thinking expansively about your business model? There are so many. As I said, I, I could have literally created a long list. But I just wanted to bring up some current ones. I think there's a massive mega trend going on, which is to do with generational shift. People are willing to share things now. So that's giving rise to opportunities for things like Airbnb or Zipcar. I mean, they, that was something that was not even thought of you know, 15, 20 years ago now. There, I bet you there will be many more shared resources coming into business models in, in the future. Flash sales was never thought of. You know, so whether it's Vente Privé or It's Groupon that came up with a variety of that. Uh, Those of you who were at one of my workshops saw me bring in uTest, a company that's crowdsourcing testing. Just extremely effective way to do broad testing that just couldn't be carried out in any other way. Uh, And then uh, we're going to introduce tonight two others that have sort of combinations of disruptive business models, Acquia and Demandware. Um, And I hope you'll get a sense from them that there's lots of different ways to go and create these disruptive business models. So, of course, that leads to the question which is, well, how do you do that? Where do you start? Starts with questions. And the kinds of questions I'd get you to ask are these. Do you have a product or a process? So it's arguable whether Amazon actually has a product. I know they sell lots of products, but what they really have is an extraordinarily efficient way for people to get access to the products that they want and to process that order online. And in fact, for those of you who don't know this, a lot of their IP has been patented around process, not product. So that's an example of how you might ask that question of yourself. Do you have software or services? Again, very big distinction. One of my favorites is, do you have data or software? turns out lots of people who are building software products are collecting tremendously valuable data. Well, it turns out, in some instances, the data may be more valuable than the software. So in which case, why not give away the software to collect the data? So again, without asking every question on here, the thing I would encourage you to do is have a brainstorming session with your customers and your partners as part of this to challenge where they see your value is, and then obviously where you believe it is too. In the end, I want you to get one key thing out of this. I want you to be able to determine what is your core value. And those of you who know me, I've already talked about this. I like to use mnemonics because it makes it easy for you to think about things. Core to me is about finding that piece of exceptional value that you believe is distinct in your proposition. So what is that capability that you have that is really core to you? And if it is, for example, developing a magical product, and that's really where you want your value, great. But actually, if you're willing to step back from it and say, well, what if I could get that product into tens of thousands, if not millions of people's hands by giving it away and collect a different kind of value from it, which is actually, for example, how they use it? And that utilization then becomes something that they can uh, uh, work on, sorry, that you can work on for monetizing in a different way. Could that be disruptive? Especially if everybody else is just charging for software. And if it can, I just ask you to do, do one thing focus on it, forget everything else. Once you know what that core is, and once you know what it is that is distinct, it's incredibly important to build around that. Because it gets very distracting if you have five different value propositions, as we've talked about and five different core pieces of value. It's tough for your customer to identify what it is that they're getting that's of unique value from you. Now, um, just to put this in context of some of those companies we talked about, a lot of these companies are doing things that seem software related, like Siri. Siri is really not a software company. It's actually a data company. The more data they collect from you, it's now part of Apple, but the more they're effective they become in translating your speech and obviously giving you uh, value added uh, services. And ultimately, that became the value of that uh, company. Yelp, I mean, Yelp, yeah, it's a great website. But what use would Yelp be if there was no content in it? Nada. And so Yelp's value has obviously become content. And then their local presence is obviously being monetized in lots of different ways. I'm going to let Don talk about Google in, in a second. The one, of course, that I think is uh, fun to talk about normally is Red Hat because it's built on free software. But we've got an even bigger example of that tonight in Dries, who's actually built the largest Drupal, uh, sorry, open source project in the planet in Drupal. And he's going to talk about how we monetize free. So we get a chance to hear that live. Um, but this time last year when we were all talking about it, Facebook was the big question. How much would people value Facebook at? I don't think that's really been determined. It had a, obviously an extraordinarily unsuccessful IPO by some standards in terms of how it went up and down. But if you looked at it in relative terms, I think it's still true that people are trying to figure out what is that network worth? You know, how do you value the relationships that are online? One thing I know for sure is it's certainly not a software product that people buy uh, the way we would think about traditional packaged products. <laughs> and the value is being um, very clearly focused on by that team at the core as the data they're collecting and how they monetize it and everything from advertising to other relationships. So once you've found your core, whatever it is, The big thing you want to do is step back and say, what could I do to make that disruptive in terms of how I'd monetize it? How could I take that and do something that other people are not doing with it and use that to my competitive advantage? And that's where the beginning of creating a disruptive uh, model starts. So with that, enough talk from me. I'd like to get uh, Don to come up and share a real world example of what he experienced when he moved from Microsoft to Google and what did Google do uh, to uh, actually change the game on apps. And, and think about this just as I introduced Don. Microsoft dominated, with a multi-billion dollar, highly profitable business, the uh, apps arena with Office for a long, long time. So what was the core of their value? Anybody? No, this is, this is Microsoft. Software. Software, yeah. That was clearly software. They weren't trying to monetize anything else. So what do you do to come along and compete with that? Over to you, Don.
2: Thank you. Um, I want to start by saying this guy over here asked a brilliant question. To remind you, he said, Well, Michael was describing the business model that they used at Symantec, and he said, Well, why can't they just copy that? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Because you have to be, w- when you're in a business like this, you have to be disruptive in three areas technology, business model, and market position. Those are the three levers that you can pull. You have to assume that technology, any technology can be replicated within a short period of time, months to years, any technology, So that's easy. I mean, that's what technology companies do, develop technology. So start there. Assume that any technical advantage that you have is very short-lived and your competitors will copy it. So that leaves you business models and market position. So why can't you copy those things? Well, the reason is it becomes part of your DNA. It's the way that you do business. It's how you hire people. It's your cost structure. It's the way that you communicate to the market. Your market position is very, very difficult to change. So we're going to get into that a little deeper in a few minutes. We're going to compare Apple and Google and Microsoft. Apple, Google, and Microsoft compete in many areas. And they're all very big, powerful companies, but they compete in very different ways. The technologies are about the same, or one leapfrogs the other, but they generally are in the same category. So why is one more successful than the other? It's because of their business models and their market positions. So we'll get into that in a minute. Now, Google Apps versus Microsoft Office. Office is the dominant product. It, it's hard to imagine now, but five years ago, 10 years ago, it was Office. If you did Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office, Microsoft Excel, PowerPoint, they dominated. There was no competition at all. So how do you compete with a competitor that has 90% of the market, 100% of the market? Well. First thing is, don't compete head-on. And I'll get into what that means in a minute, but that seems obvious, right? Don't compete head-on. You're going to lose. So don't do that. Uh, Microsoft Office was the enterprise market. Okay? Everyone in business used Microsoft Office. So what did Google Apps do? Went in the opposite direction. said, so let's start with consumers. Let's start with home users. Don't compete head-on in the enterprise. We'll lose. So they started in a different position. Uh, Free, that's always great. Free versus paying $500 for Microsoft Office. So that's a way to compete. And is Microsoft going to come down to free? No, they aren't.
1: Hey, Don, just a key point on that. Microsoft probably didn't have the technology to do what Google did at the point. Because at that point, you had an ability to host it. Right. On existing infrastructure. You want to just talk about that? Because it's often startups are trying to figure out how could they compete? How could I do something like offer a free version?
2: Actually, it's not that hard. Oh, here's another key point startups can pivot and change and, and change their DNA very, very quickly. Big companies can't. Apple cannot change the way that they do business, Microsoft cannot change the way that they do business. Startups can. So we'll get to that a little later when we compare how Microsoft and Google and Apple are approaching the smartphone market, or how they're approaching the browser market, or how they're approaching the search market. And you'll see how the technologies, yeah, they can compete on technologies and get pretty close. But when it comes to the business model and the market approach, they cannot change their core. Startups can. So, any startup can sort of shift directions and change. Big companies can't. Um, Free versus the $500 license. Okay, so that's a sort of a a business model approach. And it's free as in freemium, right? It's free to use for a certain number of users or for a certain level, but then you pay premiums to get extra services and extra things. Uh, Simple versus complicated. When I worked at Microsoft, uh, we analyzed Office. And the reality is that most users only use about 5 to 10% of the features in Office. But there are markets that care about every one of those features. So Office is gigantic, and it has thousands of features that most of you have probably not used. But there are customers out there who pay a lot of money for one or two features that they care about. So being simple versus complicated, that was one of the advantages that Google Apps had. Uh, Lastly, the 80% solution. So just make it easy. Do the 80% solution versus the the big thing. So that was uh, one of the big ways that Microsoft, uh, not Microsoft, Google competed. I worked for Microsoft for many years, so sometimes it slips (laughs) and I, I still think I'm there. Okay, so how do you compete with a market leader that has 80 or 90 percent of the market? How can you do that? It's a tough, tough thing to do. So rule number one, do not compete head-on. Find a way to go around them. Uh, We're at Harvard, Clayton Christensen wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. How many people have read The Innovator's Dilemma? Okay. There are two books in my entire life, my business life, that had a major impact on me. Innovator's Dilemma is number one. You must read that book. If I was in business school, it would be a requirement that you read the Innovator's Dilemma. It's the most fascinating business book I've ever read. Basically what it says is it, it looks at why do large companies fail to adopt innovation? why do these tiny little startups come in and disrupt big companies i won't spoil the book for you You should read it but it's amazing and it happens over and over and over again so one of the key points of the innovators dilemma is start at the low end be disruptive be disruptive in technology in market position and in business model go for the low end because the the big companies, the big market share companies, they're going to move up, upscale. They're going to try to be more expensive product, higher margin, and they'll ignore the low end. The second book that I read, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, that gets at the second one about going for the low end, get your beachhead on the low end, and then build up, 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 keep creeping up, up, up market. And sooner or later, those big guys, you've squeezed them out. So. That's the approach of Google Apps. Start on the low end, and then work your way up. Don't compete head on. Start with consumers. So with Google Apps, it was start with consumers, then go to schools, universities, because they don't have any money, and they still need products. Then go to local governments, because local governments, they need spreadsheets, and word processors, and They need all this stuff, but they can't afford to pay. Then go to small and medium businesses. And lastly, go to the enterprise. Because once you've proven yourself through all of those markets, you're constantly, see what's happening? You're moving up market every time. And eventually you get to the enterprise. And by that time, the incumbent can't respond. They're stuck. They don't see it coming.
1: I'll jump in on this one to, to, uh, to sort of start us off. So just to summarize on that last point, I think the key thing that Don was doing there was giving you a sense of how even a big company like Google comes in and recognizes you can't just compete head on. And so they actually used their competitive advantage of having everything on the web to say, we'll give this away for free, get the users actually working with us even from the lowest level. And then they've added more and more functionality and, of course, added more and more uh, value that could ultimately be charged for. And that's been hugely disruptive. So then, a lot of people, when I was putting this case study together, said, yeah, but the current example that's more interesting is mobile, so we added this in. So even though we're a little bit over time, we'll, we'll jump in with this. What's interesting about this is that there's a lot more players than just Apple and Google in this ecosystem. There's actually the handset manufacturers, and there's also the carriers, uh, and so forth. But there's a massive battle going on between Apple and, and Google, obviously, for what is the you know, consumer usage. Of the ultimate device, whether it's a tablet or a smartphone, etc. So, Don, how can Google win this one? And I mean, I know this is playing out mm-hmm. in real time, so um, yeah. maybe just flip us to the next slide and give us some of the things that the, some of the pointers.
2: Probably around 60, 60% Android, and less than 30% iPhone. And it's going the other direction. So, Android is growing, iPhone is declining. And Microsoft and Nokia and all those others are struggling for whatever's left. So who is winning? Well, I think it depends on how you define winning. So is it possible that both Android and iPhone are winning, do you think? Yeah, it is. Because we're playing different games this gets back to your question about why can't companies change when you look at apple what does apple do hardware software integration they sell a premium product and they control everything that's what they did with the mac that's what they did with the ipod and that's what they did with the iphone so they that's what they do that's their core what does microsoft do microsoft license licenses technology. They license an operating system. That's what they have done forever. So when it comes to the smartphone market, what do they do? They license Windows to smartphone manufacturers because that's what they do. Okay, so Apple does a totally consolidated thing. Microsoft says, okay, I'm gonna license the operating system. What does Google do? Well, we have to be disruptive. We can't do what Apple does and we can't do what Microsoft does. So we do, and if you go back and look at Google from the very early days with search, what did we do? We were disruptive with technology and we were disruptive with the business model. There were 10 or 15 search engines before Google even started. It was a mature market, but Google disrupted with technology. The back end stuff, the nitty gritty stuff that most people can't see, And with the market, they introduced an ad system that no one else had. And really what made Google successful was the ad system. It wasn't really search, because search can be replicated and look pretty much the same. It was the business model and the approach to the market. So when it comes to the smartphone market, what did we do? We gave away the operating system for free. Because that's what we do. That's our DNA. We give things away. We give search away. We give Chrome away. We give Gmail away. We give Android away. But our core business model is advertising. So Apple's core business model is consolidated hardware and software, high margins, make money on hardware. Google's core DNA is give away the service and make it on advertising. That's what we do. So you see how it, it goes through what Microsoft does, what Google does, and what Apple does. The smartphone market, it's the same. If you look at the iPhone and the Android phone and the Windows phone, the new one, they're pretty much the same, but three completely different approaches to market three completely different business models. And that's where we compete.
1: So that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Does anybody have any questions on that? I think um, we should thank Don for bringing into focus two very, very real examples, uh, both of which are entirely dependent on the business model. Any questions for Don? He'll be around this evening. Go ahead. So
3: this idea that it's based on advertising, how does that change like
1: in the future, as it's going to be more of like a race to the bottom? because? to advertise in so
0: many different places and it
2: becomes so cheap to advertise online? Like, does that change for Google? Um, Scale matters in advertising and uh, Google has scale that if you look at Microsoft versus Google in the area of search, Bing versus Google search, you could argue that the technology is pretty close, but the business models aren't. We have scale that Microsoft doesn't have and can't have, so it makes it work. When it comes to mobile, Advertising on mobile is going to be different. When it came to search, you're probably too young to remember this, but I used to work at Alta Vista. And we had these display ads and these blinking GIFs and all this crazy stuff. That's what advertising was until Google came along and changed it and made it profitable. You'll see the same thing happen in mobile. Mobile advertising is going to be completely different than the advertising that you see on the web. So it's not a declining market. It's not a race to the bottom. Uh, there's going to be innovation there that's unbelievable.
0: I was wondering about the
4: patent battles between Apple and the Android manufacturers, particularly with the settlement, I believe, with HTC this week, which would seem to indicate that Apple is moving almost more in the windows-like direction of licensing their technology. What impact do you think that's going to have in light of your discussion?
2: I have nothing to say about patents.
4: Uh, No, not about the patents I'm talking about. The business model essentially.
1: Let me take a shot at it. I think think there's a very different thing than you think going on there. What's actually going on is they're still protecting their IP quite strongly. So they're still placing huge value on their software, where that's not what Google's doing. Google's saying you can have that software free. The Android operating system is an open source platform. And the fact that HTC is settled, but not for nothing, just to be clear, but for obviously a license fee that is phone, Actually, I don't think we know the full details of it yet. It still says that the model hasn't changed, is that Apple's very much defending it.
2: Right, so the model won't change. The only thing I'll say about patents is that this game is far from over. There's more to be done.
1: Thank you, Don. Okay. So for those of you who want to get a hold of Don, uh, we'll make sure his slides are up, and he has some more depth behind that on the site too, but he's uh, dondodge at google.com. Okay, so... There's a lot more I could have gone into there because uh, the whole mobile phone uh, ecosystem is one of the most fascinating in the world. There's many different players in it, you know, uh, not just the handset manufacturers um, and the operating system providers, but also the carriers themselves who've traditionally had tremendous control in this marketplace. Um, so I think it may, might make for an interesting case study if we do a masterclass class on, on this. Onwards. So creating value is the first step that um, I want you to take when you're thinking about you know, what these three steps are of creating, delivering, and harnessing value. But hopefully now you have a sense of why do you create uh, disruptive business models. That's what we've, we've tried to give you up to this point. Because they can make such a big impact um, as a startup. So in creating value, I want to jump right in with a startup secret. Because it's amazing to me how many startups go back to the drawing board and build everything from scratch. It makes zero sense to do that today. There are massive amounts of open source projects, hundreds of thousands of them to be precise, that, for example, provide a basis on which you can be disruptive. And the overall uh, way in which we talk about this, as at least uh, from a a venture standpoint, is co-creating value. Uh, In other words, don't create it yourselves, co-create it. And at a bare minimum, I think what you can do, even if you don't find any open source out there, is you can be open and extensible so other people can build around your core. If you create, for example, in the software world, open APIs, they can do that. If you are even in the hardware world, there's things now uh, such as the open source um, hardware projects that that are out there that you can build on. Uh, And if you're in a not-for-profit world, then think about how you could build on whatever infrastructure is already in place and open it up to a community. The point about this is that the more you do that, the more likely you are to get leverage out of creating your software. But I don't really want to hold back from introducing our guest tonight because um, Dries actually has built uh, one of the largest, no, sorry, not one of the largest, the largest open source community on the planet. It's, it's twice as large as Linux's community, for example. Doing exactly this, building an open source platform, which is enabling users to effectively scratch their own itch, in other words, uh, build what they need for themselves uh, to serve a very major marketplace. So Dries, let me uh, welcome you up here, and let's uh, get you a microphone and make
0: sure you get a chance to tell your story. All right, good evening, everyone. Um, how many people actually know Drupal? All right, um, a, good, a good amount of people. So for those that don't know Drupal, uh, Drupal is open source software, and I explain that in a bit. Um, but it's effectively software that people use to build websites. You know, Just like you would use PowerPoint to create a presentation, uh, you use Drupal to create your website. Um, This is me 12 years ago out of my dorm room in in Belgium where I started Drupal. Um, I kind of started it by accident to be honest because I just wanted to create a message board. And as you can see, I was your typical geek um, at my assembly books, my chess board, my collection of stamps. So basically all of the checkboxes checked. Uh, And so what I did is I created this piece of software and I decided to make it available for free. So I gave it away Um, and everybody could download and use it and what happened is that over the course of 12 years um, a lot of people uh, decided to to basically chip in and help you know add to the software and so uh, fast forward uh, 12 years and now you know roughly one out of 50 websites actually a little bit more one out of 50 websites in the world um you know are built on drupal um we have over 15,000 modules or extensions, you know, little pieces of app like, you know, very similar to apps on the iPhone, you know, things that people can download to extend uh, their website. And an example module could be a blogging module or a forum module and, and so forth. Um, also interesting is that our website uh, Drupal.org, we get 1.5 million unique visitors a month, which uh, kind of blows me away because it's a pretty boring website. <laughs> about um you know just a piece of technology. It's not like it's your local newspaper or you know some other um you know popular destination on the web. Um so a lot of websites are built on Drupal from Whitehouse.gov to Mitt Romney's website to pretty much every major artist in the world, Britney Spears, Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones, um Justin Bieber. <laughs> Uh, So, a lot of different artists, a lot of different universities. um, In fact, 71 of the world's top 100 universities um, use Drupal in a very significant way, including Harvard's main website, um, you know, that is built on Drupal. Um, So, what's special about Drupal compared to our competitors is that Drupal is open source. And for those that um, don't know open source, open source effectively means that the user gets four freedoms. The first freedom is a freedom to actually run the program and that means you can download it, you don't have to pay a license fee, it's free, and you can install it and use it, in our case, to build your website. But that doesn't, um, you know, differentiate open source from, say, um, freeware. So there's these three additional freedoms and that's a freedom to study the program, meaning you can look at the source code, you can study how it's built um, how it's architected. Um, and then on top of that, the third freedom, it actually allows you to make changes to the program. So if you find a bug, you can fix it. Or if you have an idea for an improvement to make it faster, to make it better, to add functionality, you can actually do that as well. And then the fourth freedom is actually a very important freedom, and that's a freedom to chain, uh, to you know redistribute the program. So you can actually share the changes that you've made uh, you know, with other people. And so Drupal has grown so fast, um, you know, because it's cheaper, it's less expensive, but that's not the only thing. It's it's also winning because it's actually better. And so uh, open source people often think, you know, it's great um, because it's free. But really what happens is those additional three freedoms, you know, freedom two to four, uh, it actually encourages collaboration. You know, it encourages people to share. Um, As a result, open source is not just a software license, it's actually a development model. Um, And so to give you an example, uh, Drupal 7, which is our current main version of Drupal, I've actually accepted patches from over a thousand different people. So more than a, a thousand different people, you know, actively contributed to making that version of Drupal. And that's just the base version of Drupal that I'm talking about. There's, as I mentioned, over 15,000, you know, modules or extensions. And each of those extensions have been developed by one or more people as well. So in total, we have, you know, tens of thousands of people that all together built the software. And that's highly disruptive because um, even our biggest competitors, proprietary competitors, they may have engineering teams of 50 to 100 people, but certainly they don't have tens of thousands of people building the software. So um, again, open source uh, leads to collaboration and in our case, collaboration leads to community. Um, And here's a photo um, of one of our events. Uh, We have these events all around the world, thousands of people attend them. Actually last weekend, I was in California. Um, There was an event called Bat Camp, which is the Bay Area Drupal Camp Uh, was over 1,500 people. Um, We have bigger events even where, you know, we have 4,000 people show up. Um, And these events are happening all around the world. So every weekend, there will be these events in major cities around the world uh, where hundreds to thousands of people show up to work together and help make Drupal better. So, again, um, open source. Uh, It's not just a license. It actually leads to collaboration, leads to this huge, huge community with thousands and thousands of people. And it's actually that community that translates into a lot of innovation. And as a result, open source actually wins, or at least mature open source projects, they win, not just because it's cheaper or less expensive, but it's actually better. And it's better because in fact, so many people, um, you know, contribute to it. And so, uh, in terms of business models, um, you know, Drupal and open source in general, um, they're a huge, you know, catalyst for uh, creative destruction. I don't know how many people know uh, Schumpeter, but I uh, was an economist that had this, you know, concept, concept of creative destruction, which basically he said that, um, you know, to create more value and to, you know, to, to change, change the game, you actually have to destroy something. And so, in, in many ways, what's happening here is we are kind of changing the way um, we develop software through open source. We're changing the way people build websites. I didn't really talk about that. Um, but the way we do things in Drupal is fundamentally different from um, the way our competitors work. Um, but in doing so, we're also changing our industry. The way we sell Drupal, the way we market Drupal, all of these things are being. Um, you know, disrupted. So, um, and then as a little bonus, uh, something that I like to talk about is in doing so we actually do well financially. Like, you know, I've also started a company called Acquia. And so we're doing well in terms of, you know, we're a growing successful company, but in, in being so we're also doing a lot of good meaning in making Drupal better. We also enable lots and lots of organizations from govern, you know, governments that are trying to change the way they interact or participate with citizens to helping a lot of large and small nonprofits from Amnesty, that's using Drupal, to Greenpeace, to Doctors Without Borders, which you know are standardizing on Drupal. We're actually enabling all of these organizations to better fulfill their mission. So not only are we changing our industry, we're also enabling a lot of um, other organizations to do well. So um, that's a little bit of background on Drupal. And uh, I'll come back to talk about some other things.
1: Thank you, Dries. I think what that does, hopefully, is to give you a sense of something that has had a huge impact because of what Dries started with, which was a very, very small, in this case, literally technical core for building what was this bulletin board, but making it extensible. And so really what I would hope you take away from that, apart from the many wonderful things that Dries just shared with you, is that having that vision right from the get-go about how you might do something that could enable people to create around it, co-create as we talked about it, can lead to some very, very big game-changing outcomes. Uh, And there are many examples of this going on in many different regards around the world that I think are a basis even for -for not-for-profit to think about that as an opportunity. So let's move on to the second part of this, delivering and capturing value. This is all about how do you actually take your product or service to market. And how do you do that in a disruptive way? And again, I'm gonna jump right in with a startup secret. There are two things I like to try to get people to think about here, multipliers and levers. And each of them plays a role. The multiplier is really about how do you get more out of your life cycle value of your customer? In other words, how do you get more revenue out of them? How do you increase the reach to get to them? And how do you increase the coverage of how they use your products and services? And so levers are... um, Uh, the exact opposite of that they are how do you reduce the time to deliver your product or service how do you reduce the costs in in doing so and how do you reduce the resources in it and what Dries just talked about is all of those things actually in the Drupal uh, delivery so Dries just to come back up here and and wrap this up in business model terms can you talk about how what Drupal's open source project does in terms of providing these multipliers and levers?
0: Sure. So, as as you mentioned, our core is a you know f- very small piece of technology which is architected to be very very extensible and flexible. And so, as a result, one of the multipliers is you know this this community that I talked about that is adding functionality every day, and they're adding that functionality, not Acquia as a company. And so it's kind of magically happening. It's like, you know, from Acquia's point of view or from any other Drupal company's point of view, it's like we have this massive engineering force out there you know people adding those um, those features and functionality and you know with that is also another multiplier which is a community reach the fact that um, so many people are using drupal in so many different use cases uh, and it's a completely new way of doing you know product management even Um, and then um, to talk about the levers Um, so one thing which as i mentioned already one thing which we have to do a lot less of as a companies. We need to spend less, um, you know, time and effort, you know, actually building Drupal itself, and so we can focus our time and effort on building, you know, other things. <laughs> um, and same thing with marketing. It's it's amazing to see how passionate some of these people are in the community. They have, you know, like Drupal tattoos, T-shirts. It's like <laughs> uh, the amount of marketing that they do for us uh, is is pretty. Um, pretty overwhelming. Actually, if you want to check out what they do, just Google you know, Drupal on Flickr or some other photo sharing site and you'll be amazed by some of the passion that these people have and how that translates in, a, in a, a marketing advantage.
1: The multipliers here are really fun because they actually are examples of things that I think you can find in almost any project. What you'll find is that if you can get co-creation going on, for example, then other people adding value to um, your product will, of course, cause them to be passionate about it. They'll often evangelize it for themselves because it's, it's something they've created. And that's exactly what happens at Drupal. You, you get many people who created in what we call distributions that have done things like create entire almost products um, that are doing things like, for example, providing uh, educational sites right out of the box so people can get value right away. And on the other side of things, of course, by us not doing all the development, it's taking the cost out of um, you know, the R&D side of things. And that's what I mean by... Levers that take cost out, But also, when people are using the software for free, at a certain point in time they become a customer, a potential customer for the services that uh, might be needed on top of that. And that's making customer acquisition effectively free uh, until somebody actually says, oh, I need something on top of it. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Mary's gonna introduce the commercial entity behind Drupal, which is Acquia, and talk about how we do that. So let me just put some examples up so you can think about these. The kinds of things I'd, I'd have you think about around your business model are, in sales and marketing, how could you do things like tiered pricing, come up with freemium the way we've talked about with Google and, and, um, and uh, Drupal here? How can you create channel partners which will leverage your ability to get to market? And then in uh, your product, I'm going to introduce a few concepts to you tonight, uh, slippery products and Russian doll packaging, which will actually give you a sense of that. These are a couple of startup secrets. And also how you might leverage other people's technology stacks, so building on top of what's already there. The point here is that as a venture capitalist, I'll tell you We're always looking for the multiplier in your business model. Because if all you did was charge for hours in the day, then there would be a limited amount of value that you could ever deliver on a per person basis. And that's why we don't like consulting businesses. Because obviously, you can only have so many bodies and so many hours in the day to get so much value delivered. But the more you can create multipliers with either your products or your channels to market, or the ways in which you actually deliver that value, obviously, the more interesting it gets, and the more you obviously create a basis for getting higher value out of your core, And then uh, on the other side of things, we look at the levers and we say, how can you take the cost out of the sales and marketing, whether it's by using things like the web, or inside sales, or inbound marketing, or getting viral marketing. And by the way, when people say viral marketing, there's lots of ways to talk about viral marketing. The most obvious of which has been around forever, which is referral marketing. When you buy a product or service that you love, and you love it enough to talk to the next person you you care about, and you tell them about it, that's viral marketing at its most core and it's still one of the most effective ways for startups to actually spread the word and people underutilize it. So I would encourage you always to test your most basic propositions with people who should care about it and see if it passes the test that they would recommend it to the next person. Because if it doesn't, you probably have learned something. You probably haven't got a level working for you and you've probably got a challenge in either your product or your business model or something. But these levers, Uh, can be a uh, a little more fundamental in your business model. They can be things like how do you take cost out through offshoring or outsourcing or crowdsourcing, as we talked about, code creation we just talked about, or again through technology stacks. Now, I've got technology stacks up here twice, and if we have time I'll explain why, but it's actually, for most technology companies, true to say that your greatest leverage will come from figuring out whose ecosystem you fit into and how to leverage it. Um, leverage in terms of playing with them and go to market as well as in terms of taking cost out by not building everything yourself. So have a think about that. And in the end, the best business models I've found work on both multipliers and levers at the same time. In other words, they enable you to get both uh, an advantage in going to market, for example, and a cost reduction in building your product uh, from a single strategy. And there are many ways in which that may play out, but since we've just talked about Drupal, I'm going to invite Mary up to talk about how did she find uh, a way to take what was basically a free and open source product and, um, and make money out of it? And I shouldn't say it was just you, but <laughs> you're now responsible
0: for it.
3: So um, we get, uh, I get asked often, um, well, if Drupal's free, how did you build a business around Drupal? How does Acquia make money? Um, and so the way in which we do that is Acquia was formed um, by, by Dries and, um, and, and another co-founder. and it was all about providing um, enterprise support for Drupal and being the enterprise guide for Drupal. So, you know, Dries talked about there being 10,000 modules, 15,000 modules out there. Um, you know, high degree of complexity with that, and so Acquia is really about helping enterprises. Um, with Drupal in their use of Drupal. And, that, and I'll talk about from, from a product set how that works in, in a couple of different ways. But you know, we do provide cloud-based um, solutions and support. So we have built IP and some products around Drupal. Software itself is free. Um, we've done that now for over 2,000 customers. Um, We've built a company over the past several years here of uh, today that has uh, 250 employees. You can see our revenue growth rate has been significant. We've done that in a highly predictable and repeatable way, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, and really focused on what we call a land and expand strategy. So it's all about landing within these customers in a way that's providing some level of support around their use of Drupal and then um, expanding that relationship with them through products, through services, through upsell capabilities. So, again, Drupal is free, it's also open source, you know, can you make money from that? Absolutely. And it's really focusing around the core of that and using the free and open source, as Michael talked about, as a multiplier and a lever, both from an R&D perspective, and obviously we have the community that that from an R&D and really drives our cost of R&D down, and then leveraging on the sales and marketing side through partners. Through the community and through also in our ability with that land and expand strategy to drive the cost of our of our customer acquisition down over time. So on the product side, this looks little complex and a lot going on but really what we focus to do is to provide um, services and support around Drupal in whatever way the customer is using Drupal and so um, we have really listened to our customers and, and Drupal at its core is about building websites and companies have hundreds of websites. And the way in which they want support from us for those varies. And so we started out at its core with with what's called the Acquia Network. And it was really about providing support and tools and a knowledge base for customers. Everything from them being able to call, because the, the software is open source, who do they get support from when they're dealing with some of the complexity about the modules? How do they put those things together? And so we provide everything up to, you know, 24 by 7 support for these enterprises, as well as a way for them to search through a knowledge base and for any issue that they might be um, facing as it relates to Drupal. They also, And that's in a situation where customers are hosting the websites themselves. We also learned over time that they had a desire not to be in the business of hosting those websites and allow us to host those websites for them in our cloud. And so that, that's in a managed deployment way where they can still manage the code, but we're actually hosting the sites for them in a variety. We've built out a layer of, um, of IP that really optimizes their use of Drupal in our cloud. And then um, at the top here, Drupal Gardens, Um, This enterprise site factory concept is really about Drupal as a service and software as in a software as a service way. So in many cases, customers have hundreds of websites, you know, Dries talked about all the music artists, where they want to um, spin up those websites in a very templated way. And they can do that in software as a service. They don't care so much about about managing the code. They're happy for us to manage the code for them, but we are providing Drupal to them um, in in a way that is um, very economical for them and very quick for them to be able to spin those websites up. We wrap around that um, a variety of professional services and training. Um, so we don't actually build the websites, we have a huge uh, partner community that is also uh, you know, a, a, both a multiplier and a lever for us in a lot of cases. Um, but we provide very high-end services around Drupal, whether it be performance type audits, site audits, migration audits, those types of things. And so oftentimes that's how we get into a, a customer, is our relationship begins at that stage where we're doing some sort of um, professional services for them they see the value in that and then they sign up for a, sus- a subscription at, um, you know, at any of these levels, whether it just be the Acquia network or on our cloud. And so that when I talk about sort of a repeatable business model, it's that subscription services that we're selling on an annual basis that um, becomes the foundation for that um, repeatability. From in terms of the multipliers and and levers, you can see um, we have created multipliers by value um, by upselling all of our products and services. In some cases, we start with a free version of the software or a um, trial version of the software, going after. You know, developers in some cases winning the hearts and minds of those developers that can really be the influencers in the organization for continued upsell capabilities. And then, um, you know, on, on from a lever standpoint, really, you know, continuing that land and expand strategy and expanding the usage through our network of partners. They're building the websites. They often bring Acquia in um, and selling our services alongside theirs from a from a either a professional service standpoint or on the subscription.
1: Great. Thank you, Mary. So one of the things that's uh, interesting about this is obviously every business had a different way of thinking about uh, what their core value is, and and in this case obviously we've talked about software, but a lot of you here are thinking about things in a a broader sense. And so I'm going to try to give you a couple of ideas about how you can design your business model for success. And designing for success is something that I don't want you to start again after you do your product build. I want you to think about it right from the get-go. Uh, So what I've learned from watching startups is obviously people think about UX. They think about user experience because that's the first thing that that, um, customers obviously feedback them. And I'm going to ask the obvious question, which is, you know, what's been your user experience? And let's take the smartphone uh, example. How many of you have downloaded more than five or 10 apps? Big numbers, you know, so, you know, that's 30, 40, 50 people in the audience here who've done that. So how many of you have used more than one or two of them for a long period of time? Okay, that's, that's still a good number, but I'll ask it another way then. How many of you have rejected at least five apps and stopped using them? Same number of hands going up. So the point is, it very quickly comes back to you, you know, whether those are worth keeping or not. And so that user experience quickly is the determination of whether you're succeeding or not. So your product design obviously is critical to whether you start to get customer acceptance and therefore the beginnings of a good long life cycle or not. But what also comes past at that point is things like supportability and how do you do things like your maintenance, your updates, your upgrades, and upsells. And it actually needs designing right from the get go. And it leads to two particular startup secrets I want to share with you, the first of which is what we call slippery products. So if every product was slippery, I would guarantee it would be successful. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, if it was simple, it was low to no initial cost, it was in- easy to install, it proved value immediately and it played well with other things that you use it with and it was then easy to use in whatever your application of it was and ultimately gave you a payback that was obvious and finally became something you couldn't live without it would be successful so why don't we design slippery products well my experience is this people just don't think through all of these steps and it turns out it's a fundamental part of your business model so particularly as a startup Think about your product as at the very core of what you're doing to define your business model. Because if you can make a truly slippery product, for those of you here for the value prop, you're going to really quickly benefit in the gain pain ratio. You'll quickly give your customers a lot of gain from the product. And their experience of actually trying to install it and use it will have low pain associated with it. So it'll become a why wouldn't you product, which they can't live without. And if you think about the carrying on with the phone example, the apps that you can't live without have probably all these slippery characteristics. It probably immediately when you download it, it gave you great value. And you found it so easy that you didn't bother even thinking about what it cost you, even if it did cost you something. You kept using it, and the next thing you know, you're clicking the update button every month. And you're getting more value. And then next thing you know, you probably find that you're buying in-store purchases if, if you're getting value out of the thing. So this is a critical piece of your business model, even though it's actually about your product. And why I spend some time on it here is because it feeds into, as you'll see later on, um, how the lifetime value of your product is uh, monetized and indeed, obviously, uh, how effectively you're acquiring customers. If, if they're getting great experience, they probably will be referring it. You'll get viral uh, adoption and so forth. So again, just to bring this into focus with our case study for this evening, I'd like to invite Dries up just to give us a sense of what, what makes Drupal slippery.
0: All right, so um, you know, Drupal is simple. Um, because um, the way you use Drupal is you can basically build an entire website, a very, very rich and powerful and complex website just from within the browser without having to do any programming, which is um, you know, often game-changing compared to almost all of our competitors. Um, obviously it's free, <laughs> uh, so that you know, checks of the L in Slippery. Uh, it installs very easily and that's something um, that we've actually uh, focused on a lot by providing easy to use installers as well as a software as a service version where you can just go to say drupalgardens.com which is our you know software as a service offering and you can just sign up and you'll have a website up and running within minutes versus you know often with proprietary vendors you have to um, you know talk to a salesperson, they'll schedule a demo. once you've gone through the demo, you need to buy it. once you buy it, you can actually start using it to build your website. So, that usually takes weeks or months. Um, Pros: value quickly. Um, you know, once you install it, you can immediately immediately start using it. We also have a concept called distributions, and a distribution is essentially um, a, a productized version of Drupal that does one thing. For example, there is a distribution um, f- called Open. Um, open publish and it's kind of like a newspaper website out of the box. You install it and you have a newspaper website ready to go. And so we have distributions along many different um, dimensions. Uh, place well with others is an easy one for open source because of the architecture. Um, it's very flexible, <coughs> basically integrates with many different systems. Um, and if it doesn't, people can basically build an integration module themselves. So, um,
1: we're integrated with everything from Amazon to salesforce.com to Pinterest, just to give you an example of breadth of that. Right. And and you could never imagine doing that if it was just your own R&D team trying to do those hundreds of integrations. We'd have an, a huge team, but the open source community does it continuously.
0: Right, and we do it really fast. Yep. Like usually, say if a service like Pinterest launches, within weeks there will be an integration module versus, again, our proprietary competitors, it usually takes, you know, many months before they first Pinterest needs to become a thing, then it needs to be recognized by a product manager, then it needs to be put on the roadmap, but that's not always possible because they sold the roadmap you know, to customers. And so it usually can take uh, many, many months or years even before they built these kinds of integrations that um, in the Drupal world usually come within, within weeks. Uh, again, it's easy to use. I've already talked about that. Um, the return of investment is pretty obvious, obvious because it's cheaper. Uh, it's also better because of all of the community efforts that I talked about, um, and you know customers can't live without it because, uh, in our case, usually the flexibility and the extensibility that comes with the platform, and because they can do things which they can't do with, um, you know, many of the other platforms. So,
1: thanks, trees So hopefully that brings up an example of a slippery product to life. Um, If we have questions on any of this, don't hesitate to jump in and and, and ask Dries about it or anybody else on the thing. So that's the first startup secret, is is think about building slippery products and try to find a way that those become part of your business model, how you can actually use them uh, to both reduce costs and obviously extend the the reach. So the second thing I want to talk about is something I call a Russian doll, and uh, it's just a term to try to bring to life for you in a graphical format. How you can use packaging, pricing, distribution, and much more as a startup to create a disruptive business model. So let's talk about some of the things that we've already been doing in terms of this construct. First of all, if you can create a version of your software that's free, or a version of your product or your service that's free, I encourage you to do that, because there's nothing that beats free. And to state the obvious, if gives people a chance to try it before they buy it, they're gonna do it. It's just a natural human thing that we wanna do that. However, you obviously want to have at some point a freemium model that gives you a basis to upgrade from that to something whether it's of limited functionality or more substantive functionality that gives the next step. Because being able to charge ultimately, as we've all learned from the first collapse of the web, is somewhere along the line going to be important, even if you're a not-for-profit, because you've got to have that sustainability as your backbone. Now, if you're going to think about ways in which you do interesting distribution, one of the first things that often comes up for startups is standing on the shoulders of giants and doing things like OEM deals. So I think OEM deals are great, so long as you don't give away your core IP, because then you very quickly get Effectively commoditized and you lose control of that value, but you can do it if you use a Russian doll You can come up with some kind of an addition a personal addition that that is OEM'd out by a big partner that gets out into the marketplace If once again what you've got is some premium to that that you can sell upwards from is the next step and so again thinking about this as a startup if you're packaging your product in this way in this Russian doll way You can create different channels and different versions and different value points that will enable you to get leverage in how you go to market. Now what's interesting about this is when you get into sales you've obviously got a much higher cost. You've obviously got you know human cost associated with whatever it might be you know six-legged sales calls if you're dealing with a sales rep, an SE and um, you know support person. So you're gonna have to have a higher price still and that's why people again try to come up with packaging that usually gets up to whatever it might be corporate or or, uh, enterprise level. And so again, if that's a packaging or pricing you can do that enables you to get a different distribution channel, like a sales channel, a costliest channel, then figure out how to do that. And then going one step further, as you get adoption, you will find there'll be tremendous pressure on you to come up with lower pricing. People will just expect it. They'll say, OK, I'm going to buy 10,000 units now. How much of a discount are you going to give me? Well, you're going to face that question. So why not design for it and say, I'll give you X percent discount, but now I've got an enterprise edition which has a whole bunch of other things, by the way, like management consoles, for example, for controlling it. In the case of Drupal, it turns out that when Warner had over 100 music sites, one of the most important things for them was to manage all of those sites like it was one site, so they could do things to be reaching out to their artists in a very time efficient way. So that became another option for us to sell on top that meant we didn't just keep losing value. Now, I'll tell you, it's amazing to me how many times startups don't think this through early enough to be able to modularize their product and package it correctly to take advantage of all these things. But it is critical to getting the multipliers and levers that I was talking about if you're going to be successful at scaling in the longer term. So I really encourage you to think about something and to, uh, like a Russian doll model and to give you sort of a, a, a one-line tweet, if you like, around it that you can remember. What I really think about is addiction before adoption. Try to get people addicted to your solution uh, long before you try to get them to adopt it. Uh, because guess what? If people are addicted, they'll adopt all the rest of it. And if you think about great products that you probably love, that you're just using without thinking about it, you probably got addicted to them very early on before somebody said, well, I'm going to sell you this, that, the other, and everything else that goes with it. And uh, you know, it, it, at the basic level, it's razor and blade strategy. Uh, at the more fundamental level today, in the way we do things, it's everything from inbound marketing to obviously Upselling to, to get extreme value out of it. Now, uh, I won't get Mary back up here for this one because she's really sort of talked it through. But, you know, we were going to, to talk about this in, in a Drupal sense, and it, it turned out Mary had already done all the work in our last board meeting, so I'll just share it with you. She, as she explained, Acquia did exactly this. They created effectively a free version, their developer edition, um, that people could immediately start to get value out of. They also created a free tier of the Acquia support network to get value out of and enable people to just get on and try this. And the results of doing that would never have played out well if we hadn't got this Russian doll packaging strategy and pricing strategy with all the different product versions on it. But it's played out amazingly well because if you look at the results, we've basically seen our lifetime values escalate hugely. I mean, uh, was it doubled last year? Yeah. Yeah. So doubling in in the lifetime value of the customer over the course of one year. And as you can see from the, the numbers without getting into detail, They've just escalated hugely since, uh, since day one. So instead of something getting marginalized or commoditized, it's increased in value because we, from day one, were thinking about this. And it's really the opportunity that each of you has when you think about how to build your business model is what will be the way in which you will increment value year after year to get this kind of uh, same result that, that the Acquia team has got. So let's put it all together. I said we wanted to be able to create, deliver, and harness value. Well, most startups have a very basic model on which they test this. They say, has the lifetime value of the customer got at least 3x the cost of acquiring that customer? And that's a, that's a reasonable model, but you'll notice that I've been using slightly different acronyms here, and there's a reason for it. It turns out what makes for a great business model is more than that. It's more than just those two statistics, and it's why I'm not a favor of what I would describe as prescriptive learning. Uh, Because I've seen people come in and give me this stat and say, no, I've got it at exactly 3.4, you know, we're going to be a hugely successful business. Maybe. Uh, It turns out there are a lot more things to this. And so what you really want to do is step back and say, how do you do what Mary was talking about, which is create something that's very repeatable, that's very scalable, with leverage in it, so it ultimately becomes profitable and therefore sustainable. And even if you're a not-for-profit, this is important. And then. For real sort of extra bonus points, how does it become very predictable and valuable? So I'm going to try to deconstruct this and tell you a little bit about that and how you might think about this uh, and get a sense of how you can build it into your own thinking. So first of all, mistake number one that I see from startups is that they assume their entire business model is about maximizing that R&D spend. Well, it turns out when you build a company from scratch, obviously R&D is probably going to be 100% of your P&L or close to it if that's what you start with, is coming up with a minimum viable product, for example. And, you know, it's a pleasure to see people trying to figure out ways to take cost out of that. But here's the bad news. The bad news is when you get to your target model, and I've made one up here, but it's pretty typical of any software company I could pick out, for example, or many other companies in, in other industries, gross margin becomes more important than, than uh, you can possibly imagine. That's obviously the cost of producing that product and delivering it. Um, and if you can get that at as high as a software company or a drug company at 80%, that you're in great shape. But even then, the next thing to notice is that R&D is now down at about 15% of revenue. The sales and marketing it will typically end up being about triple the amount that the uh, R&D is. So you'll typically see it being about, for example, you know, 40 45% in sales and marketing, whereas R&D will only be about you know, 10 to 15%. And then your bottom line will be about 20%. So uh, what I would like to do now is is invite Mary up to to share what literally was live at our last board meeting about the company's challenges to do this. This is not easy, right, Mary? It is not.
3: No. Um, so, so this, these are real live percentages here um, of uh, for Acquia over our life cycle here. So, you know, starting in, in 2010, you can see a significant amount. Um, you know, 48. We're still spending in R and D on the uh, on the product side, and um, with uh, you know our cost of goods sold um, over 60. Um, we have had a lot of success sort of declining that over the past couple of years in all areas. I mean, if you look at at 2013, we're still, all of our expenses are adding up over 100%. It's not good enough. We need to be a profitable company, obviously. So all of those expenses need to be under 100%. But this is a model that I use with our executive team in talking about as we set our our um, operating model every year and looking out as a long-term model. As Michael just talked about, looking and saying, okay, if we have you know gross margins at 75% and uh, you know profit at 15 or 20%, and our model is a little bit different than the a proprietary software company that would have you know 80%. Margins Um, and the fact that we're doing a lot on the cloud, um, our margins are going to be a little bit lower. But it's really guiding the company towards that long term model so that, you know, as Michael mentioned. R&D is going to come down significantly from, you know, when you start up and you're spending you know a significant amount of money in R&D in a long-term model you're spending in the 15, 18 percent range. Your sales and marketing takes over um, in in spending, you know, 35 to 40 percent on the sales and marketing side um, and then G&A at a much lower rate at about 10 percent so that you're you're operating at a profit and your operating margin is somewhere around you know 15 to 20 percent for a long-term profitable sustainable company.
1: Thanks Mary. So the point here being if you're designing your products and services thinking about how do you take them to market cheaper, then you'll be hitting the number one cost item in your long-term model, which is this big green chunk here. And whereas it was R&D way back there, um, you know, that was ex- the 48% the of the model. Right now, that's down to 15%. And this is the big nut to crack, is how do we get things to market cheaper and make them more supportable and serviceable? So this is why the business model is so important to think of. And, and you know, happily, what Mary's done here is actually build something that's highly predictable. And now we have you know, a high re- a degree of recurring revenue and a long-term model that is paying off. Do You want to just hop up and just cover these last two?
3: Sure. So um, from a standpoint of the um, repeatable, you know, today we are selling 70% of all of our bookings are um, our, our subscription-based. And so um, why is that important? Because they're renewing every year. And, and not only at the time that they're renewing, um, you know, we're looking to renew them, but we're also looking to continue to upsell them, and so that our annual renewable base continues to increase every year. Um, 30% of our business today is coming from consulting services. That will de- continue to decline naturally. We'll always be providing those key differentiating services around Drupal, but that will continue to decline naturally as that annual renewable base continues to increase. Um, and today, our renewal rate is. Um, 85% for non-project-related work. A lot of websites are, are built today, and they, um, and maybe just for a project, a good example is we built um, Drupal was used to build. Um, the uh, merger site for uh, Continental and United, and um, and obviously that was up for you know a period of a year. We we have those types of things, so our renewal rate is going to be less um, than a traditional SaaS model in that way. Um, but we are certainly shooting for um, you know ninety percent renewal rates for non-project related work over time. You know our annual sus- subscriptions being about twenty percent of our model, so we continue to increase that um, those renewable subscriptions, and we continued also. You know, from an upsell capability, also to continue to build value into the products to increase that stickiness factor so that you know, it's, it's much harder for customers to, to, um, to walk away and not want to continue to renew that subscription. So from a long-term model, this is what we guide um, the team on. Like I said, we'll always do some percentage of, um, of consulting services, and I think from a long-term perspective, it's probably be right around 20%. And then um, you know, what are some of, some of the levers that we look at for, um, for continued growth? I mean, obviously, new, um, new geographies. Drupal is used all over the world. Um, today, we primarily sell in North America. Um, our offices are in are in Burlington, in um, London, we have an office in Australia as well, um, but continue con- selling in all geographies around the world. Uh, new partners, we're continually looking to um, find more strategic partners um, so that they can l- lower that Um, help with on the sales and marketing side and lower that cost of our customer acquisition. Uh, New verticals. I mean, today we're very successful, you know, government, media, publishing, and entertainment, um, you know, high tech. um, But there's emerging verticals that we're seeing, such as um, pharma, healthcare, financial services. So there's a amazing amount of growth that we think in, in new verticals, and then uh, and then from a potential um, M&A, as I talked about, we're always looking for sort of tuck-in technologies to increase the stickiness factor of our subscriptions, and we do that by delivering more and more value um, to the customer. And then with our existing customers, you know, this whole concept again about the land and expand and why it's so critical is, number one, you know, it's much more expensive to acquire a new customer than it is to, um, to sell back into your install base, but we continue to sell um, into into the install base in a way not only with new products and services to those to the customers within um, to the to the departments within a particular customer that's using Drupal today, but that viral concept, I mean we get those some of those departments um, you know, really happy and they are recommending us throughout the through the throughout the enterprise. People are adding new sites all the time, so you know we have people sign up for subscription, and then they add on to the extent that they're adding uh, new sites and new capabilities, and then new products. Continuing to introduce new products again to improve that, um, increase that lifetime value of the customer, and increase that stickiness factor, which ultimately plays out in the renewal rates.
1: Thank you, Mary. So that's a real-world example of somebody dealing with a real set of, of numbers to work through to ultimately getting to a profitable business model and also making sure that it's got uh, disruption for continued growth. But the next question that everybody asks is how does it become valuable? Uh, And it's always the one that seems to be at the heart of entrepreneurs' minds. So this is a new section that came out of feedback from last year's uh, stuff. And um, what I'm going to try to cover for you here is how do you extract the value out of your company? How do you get it to be highly valued uh, at the end? So um, show of hands for those who's interested in building a, a highly valuable company. Yes. Okay. So I think that's the one thing we're almost all focused on. So in the software as a service model, which is the the most disruptive model that come along in my world, in the software world, it turns out that there are some tremendous um, high values being placed on companies today. And the question is why and what influences them. So even the median here for public companies right now, this is as at uh, uh, November, Uh, then data from Goldman Sachs, thanks to them would show you that you're getting about 5x or more than 5x revenue. So that's a pretty high multiple. Um, And and why are we getting that? Well, the first thing that you'll see, and especially for companies that are above that multiple, is it's through revenue growth. So companies that are achieving 30 plus percent revenue growth are getting tremendously high multiples. And obviously one of the reasons that is, is that if you look at where you're going to invest your money on the stock market today, um, it's tough to find anything that's yielding anything like 30% returns. And needless to say, uh, compared to putting it in the bank, that would be a stellar outcome. So when people can see these kinds of, of growth companies that have the potential to get leverage in their model and ultimately translate to profit, they're going to pay up for them. And that's, and that's what you're seeing more and more. But if we deconstruct this a bit more, and I'm not going to go through all of this tonight, but it will be up on the website. I'm going to put this entire uh, pack up that I got from Goldman to share with you. Uh, you'll find out that there are two key pieces to it. Uh, first of all, the unit economics, in other words, the value is subscribed to existing customers, uh, and then the, the uh, unit growth, the value ascribed to new customers and, and how you acquire them. And if we double click on that, it turns out the range of multiples is hugely influenced by two things we've talked a little bit about tonight, retention and upsell. Uh, Things that we've covered already are things like how do you get the levers and multipliers out of sales and marketing to get more efficiency out of it. That. That's extremely important. That drives your growth. That's some of the things we've talked about today. Things we haven't talked about today, but we've talked about in other sessions is how big is your total addressable market? You know, what's that big potential market you're going after? If it's not big, that's always an issue. And then, obviously, uh, right at the bottom line, you know, what is the profitability of your business? But these two things, it turns out, are extremely important to focus on, the retention and upsell. Um, beyond just customer acquisition. And so let's talk a little bit about how important they are. Well, it turns out uh, for Demandware, who is at the top of the list, list list with 97% retention, it's one of the key reasons that they are so highly valued. Because people find their solution incredibly sticky. For those of you who don't remember what they do, they're an e-commerce platform available as a service on the web. So when companies like Hugo Boss or Hamleys in, in the UK, or uh, you know, if you're a fashion guru, Uh, Barneys of New York, build their websites on this and they create the integrations with all their back-end catalogs of of, uh, merchandise, it becomes very sticky. And if it's successful for them, they're not going to take it out, they'll live with it for many, many years. And that's what's creating this high retention rate, which of course creates huge predictability uh, in your business if you know that your customers on average, live with you for several years. And it of course makes it very easy for you then to do the upsell of new products and services if you're successful in creating innovation. So it then turns out that if you look at upsell on these models, you have an unbelievable leverage for a 2% uptick, uh, an incremental upsell in value. You will get a 14x leverage on the valuation in your company. And why is that? Well, it's probably pretty obvious when I state it, but if you already have the customer and you can just sell to them effectively so uh, cheaply, you're really dropping almost all of that sale right to the bottom line. And if you can do that on a already high growth company, you're effectively compounding the value of it, which is why people place such huge premium uh, on companies that have multiple products and services they can upsell. That whole Russian doll packaging that I talked to you about, this is the result of it. It causes massive leverage in your valuations. So I'm not just telling you this because it's a good idea to go to market, I'm telling you it because it'll pay off in your valuation. And as I always like to say, if you know this is where you're headed, you're trying to build a valuable company, why not design this way right from the get go? So, my revised startup model for you to think about is actually not just lifetime value, but it's the entire life cycle value. And it's not just cost of acquiring customers, it's cost of acquiring and reengaging them. So, this is uh, up there on the website if you want to get more detail about it. But the net of it is you want to think about the entire life cycle in which you engage with a customer. And how long that can be—that's about your attention. And what are the things that you can do to um, obviously take cost out of during that period, uh, re-engaging those customers and upselling them new products. And the more effectively you can do that, the higher value your company is going to be. And so the lifecycle value and the cost of, of re- acquiring and re-engaging and retaining your customers is really the two uh, key metrics. Really the two key metrics to spend time on. And again, for those of you who um, have been here before, what we're really talking about here is, is the same as the gain pain. Uh, it's you know what's the gain you can give customers over a period of time, and what's the pain you can take out of selling it to them in a low-cost way. So in order to make that work, there are a couple of things you've got to think about. And I've highlighted them already during this evening. But you've got to spend time thinking about how supportable is your product. Is it very expensive to support? Because if it is, that's going to add to your cuck. Um is it difficult to service and do you need a lot of professional services to handhold uh, in the ongoing life cycle of the customer? And that will take the, obviously, the, the costs up. Put it all in, in uh, one chart for you so you can see it. There are really two views of the same principle. You've got the monetization view for us on life cycle, uh, LCV and CARC, but for the customer, their view is what's the gain they're getting and what's the pain that you're causing them in terms of actually adopting this. So that whole concept for those of you who are here for value proposition fits exactly with the same model. And it's all about gaining multiplication of the upside and taking cost leverage out of the cost on the downside. So why I say this is so important as a startup is obvious. As I said, if you know where you're headed, why not start as you plan to finish? Now when people ask, well what does that practically mean? I've struggled to always get this in Um, a form that is just a diagram without using examples. But the diagram I've come up with that people seem to like is a simple one. It's thinking about this product lifecycle. I start with a simple cycle. See products, try them, buy them, fly them, and then they ultimately die if they're not successful. So what this typically looks like is a very short cycle. If you, for example, download one of those apps that we say doesn't work, it's just gone. And that could be minutes long, literally. Uh, So that's obviously not the experience you want. And if you did have that, well, all the development cost is you know, immediately just on the wrong side of the balance sheet. And you've got no lifecycle value coming out. So you know, it's, it's how companies lose money and go out of business fast. But what if you could extend this? So what I encourage you to do is spend time thinking about how do you get them up the c try buy ramp really quickly, as quickly as you possibly can. And then once they're up it, how do you re-engage them and get them into an extended life cycle to repurchase stuff from you? And that's where all of this evening's tools come into play. In the software world, what these are is things like how do you use the web to get people to find you with things like search and keywords, SEO and, and SEM? How do you use things like open source so people could try you for free and actually go and scratch their own itch and extend you and do whatever they need with it? How can it make, you make it possible for people with slippery products to buy you in the fashion that we were talking about that's low cost, easy to install, immediately works with everything that you're already using? The more you do that, the more they'll move up this ramp really quickly. And then once they're actually using you, why sell them everything up front? Why not let them buy on demand? That's what software as a service is all about. They buy you as they use you. That's why these business models become so disruptive, because people are paying for value as they get the value. And that's what software um, as a service has done to effectively take out all the cost associated with what used to be that on-premise install and so forth. And as I told you in this uh, session this evening, there are many ways to do this. But think about that Russian doll packaging concept as a way in which you can break up the value so again, customers consume what they want when they want. And now, if you create this as a subscription model, you'll also encourage your customers to instead of paying for everything up front be getting value over time, and you'll enable your business to have this naturally built-in cycle, which brings your customers back around to you every time you deliver a little bit more value that they pay for it, that you deliver a little bit more, and then you uh, ultimately use that as a basis to go and upsell them. The beauty of this model is this, which is obviously if you're engaging customers effectively and they trust you, they're going to want to buy more from you if you can deliver more value. And all of that effectively is at marginal cost, potentially of zero if you're keeping that relationship tight. And that's why, as I said an, in that leverage of, of 14x that comes out of upsell, designing for this upfront is what will build a highly valuable company. So in the end, what I'm hoping that you're getting a sense of is that you can actually design for a short, low cost customer acquisition and retention cost, and you can get quick payback, you can get an extended lifecycle value, and the net result of that will be an extremely valuable business. And if you don't believe me, you just have to look backwards 20 years. And you will see the following. When I started out in this industry, software was installed by IT. It was customized on a very expensive level. It had very infrequent upgrades. People usually found it to be so proprietary that they wouldn't even try doing anything with it. You had um, basic extensions, like people, uh, like SAP came out with something called BAPI, which only the Germans could ever create or understand. and it was licensed in a way that you paid for everything up front. So you really had tremendously long sales cycles associated with this. So it's huge cost of customer acquisition. This is the model that used to exist in our industry just 20 years ago. None of that exists today. We're in a place where people buy stuff on the web for free. <laughs> they, they demand that it be you know self-service. They don't need anybody coming along. They don't want people installing for it. And obviously, they're expecting to be able to pay for it as they use it. And when they do, they'll take a subscription, which usually in, in uh, today's world, is, as we said, creating a very predictable business model and a very highly valuable one, too. So this is an example of exactly what's happened in the software industry in terms of a fundamentally disruptive and much more valuable business model. So even though none of you here are probably going to want to go backwards 20 years, go forwards 20 years and think about your next opportunity to come up with a set of highly disruptive and highly valuable business models in this way. And I guarantee it will help you build tremendous value. So with that, I'm going to take a pause. And um, we're coming near to the end of our time. But I'm lucky enough to have have finally been joined by my last guest, uh, Chuck. Uh, So Chuck Kane, if you'd like to come up and introduce yourself. Chuck is the president of One Laptop Per Child. uh, But he's also um, a board member at Demandware. And since we couldn't have uh, Demandware CFO join us this evening uh, due to um, unforeseen circumstances, he and I are going to double team to put all this together and just talk you through what we think is uh, innovative about DemandWare. So you ready, Chuck? I'm ready. Very good. I'm ready. So first of all, uh, DemandWare is a public company. So Chuck, I'm going to leave you the fun part. What the heck does this forward-looking statement mean, and why do we care about it anyway? Just, Just go to the next slide. The
4: <laughs> <laughs> you have to do this whenever you're a public company because you get in trouble if you don't. Lawyers are all everywhere.
1: Very good. I'm not going to say any more than that. You take full That's it. No. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so DemandWare is at the conference of three significant markets. It's in the retail market, it's also which is a, a twelve trillion dollar market. It's also in the e-commerce marketplace, and it's in the global SaaS market for uh, each of which is very big. So it fills one of the categories we were talking about for a valuable company. It has a huge total available market. So that's important. Let's talk about this for a second, um, Chuck. I mean, we we both know this, but why is it that everybody's now challenged to sell and buy stuff, on, you know, in so many different channels online? Is it is it um, uh, all coming through the PC still? No, not
4: at all. So Maybe not at this school, anyways. Maybe other schools, but not not this school.
1: So, how many people here, for example, have bought stuff on uh, their iPhone or uh, you know, or a tablet or somewhere else other than the web recently? Good numbers. Okay, so that's the problem that that we're actually solving. It turns out that there's this multi-channel experience that people want to buy stuff uh, on everything from their mobile phone to even point of sale. And and, uh, when they do that, they want one integrated experience. And in the future, we think there'll be things like, for example, TV uh, and mobile point of sale even that, uh, in fact, it's not even the future. The mobile point of sale is here uh, that people want to buy through. And so you could keep trying to innovate and build all of these different pieces, but that would be a very expensive R&D experience, as we've talked about. And especially for the customer, it would be very expensive for them to, uh, as a retailer or a brand, to continue to deliver a great online experience if they had to keep building all of these things. So what was our solution, Chuck?
4: Well, when you look at what a customer needs, if you can provide that to them remotely and you can provide the service as as software as a service, then you can be very flexible. Um, it's very inexpensive on a relative basis to establishing uh, your own infrastructure, and it, it can be much more effective because of its flexibility and dyna- dynamic. So what Demandware is doing is they're taking that, what was that model that Michael talked about earlier, where a company has to build everything inside, take it outside, offer the service, allow the customer, however, to get in and be can manipulate in ways that they can be creative with the offering so that it's not something that's take it or leave it, this is the one flavor and as a result of that they get a tremendous amount of value for that um, with with uh, with their offering on the web.
1: So it becomes effectively the best of both worlds. It's like outsourcing that entire cost center but you effectively get the ability to customize it and leverage it in the way you want. So that is what is at the core of their value proposition. Um, I think the question we we asked ourselves early on in the business is, what would be our multipliers and levers in this business? So uh, let's just cover these so you can get a sense of this. At the core of this is this, um, what can be described as the the infrastructure that is highly reliable. By the way, this is more reliable than Amazon, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. We've had less outage than Amazon has. And right now we handle, you know, hundreds of millions of customers and billions of dollars worth of commerce. So this was at the core of this, but we now consider this table stakes. We're not even ready to talk about this. It's like, okay, well, you've got to do that. The key differentiators are what the customers really want to do, which is they don't want to spend any time on that. They want to do the merchandising and marketing and things that actually make their brands, if you're somebody like Gucci or L'Oreal, really stand out. And so that's where all the, the value is being placed. So we've actually shifted our core at Demandware from being initially unbelievably highly reliable Um, You know delivery of of commerce sites to now everything being about how do we make the merchandiser more effective? So it's an interesting shift and not to say that we can't do the latter. We've still got to do that You know if that ever went down that would be a big challenge for us What about the multipliers and and levers? This is the most important piece and I'll leave you to to do it because it's the fun piece We have a shared success model. So do you want to explain that?
4: So the shared success model is um, we set a certain level at the front end of the contract and if we exceed that level where the revenues are achieved higher we share in that revenue base. I've been in software my whole career, and I think the reason that this works is because we're doing everything for them. It's not like I've tried this in other companies where you, you know, you'd go in and say, if you do so well, we'll, you know, we get a piece of the action or something, but it's the customer delivering that function. In this case, it's us delivering the function, so they're much more readily agreeing to this arrangement. And uh, and we've been extremely successful. It's also great feedback to know just how well the product is behaving, and how uh, successful the customers with, with their total sales.
1: So I'd actually argue, just to pause for a second and emphasize this, that the single biggest reason that the company has been successful is actually because of that shared success model, at least at a business model level. In other words, if you're a customer and you're typically expected to spend, let's say, tens of millions of dollars, which is what it takes to put up these big. Uh, enterprise infrastructures and we come along and we say to you know we're gonna charge you nothing for it but we'll charge you a percentage of the revenue that flows through our platform so as you're more successful selling online and opening up new channels we will be too. It's such an inviting why wouldn't you model and the more successful we are uh, at making them successful the, the more we profit from it. It's been a huge disruptor in this business. It literally changed the game and it's why you know in a real-world example I wanted to bring it to the fore here. So we talked about um, multipliers and levers. DemandWare's got many examples, but this one I wanted to bring to the fore. Turns out e-commerce is a complex landscape. People want to do everything from ratings and reviews and recommendations uh, to integrate it with their back end, order management systems, etc. So we could have done all of that. We could have either built it into our product. But if you remember, I said to you, why would we do that? That's things like co-creation. Why wouldn't we just instead create an open platform that people could augment? And that's what we've done. And so all these people in our link program are able to just connect to and build into our platform all the capabilities they bring. It's a win-win because the customers end up getting more value out of the platform, and because these are pre-integrated, when they buy the platform they get a broader solution much quicker, so it's a faster time to value. And so everybody's winning in this, and ultimately we don't care because our business model, right, is not selling software. It's actually making the customer successful, and the more successful they are with the broader set of offerings, the more everybody wins. So the multiplies and levers here can be summed up very simply as, in the link program, we're creating a, a broader whole product, fulfilling a broader value proposition, and the lever is, it's reducing the cost of integration for the customers and for us, and reduce the time to deploy, the higher, and uh, gives you faster value. So again, pretty much every business model you look at um, will have these, but the results are pretty spectacular for the company. Uh, the content growth rates here are over 50%. If you look back, these are most recent uh, numbers that we just announced as a public company. Uh, The number of customers going live is dramatically increasing. And this is probably the most exciting one of all, which is the average revenue per user. Per user here is is, uh, nearly double uh, over this period of time. Uh, All the while, we've got a very highly sticky um, model. The subscription risk margins are also staying very stable and at a very high rate. Uh, I won't go through this, but I'll put it up on the web for you. If you were to look back so you can get a sense of those same percentages we were talking about earlier, you'll also see that all these things that we've been talking about are shifting. R&D's cost is is the cost that's going down, and we're also trying to get sales and marketing more efficient. All the time, also, we're taking down our cost of revenue dramatically. And ultimately, we've got a very profitable business model here. It'll end up being in in about a 25% drop to the bottom line. Anything you'd want to add to that?
4: Well, it's the revenue that drives those percentages on the right. As the revenue increases, which you keep in steady expenses, that's what drives the model the way it does.
1: And then here's a piece of it that just is very visual too. So each of our customers actually has mul- multiple sites too. So when we get one customer, they often have multiple brands. So you know, there's, there's many that I could point out here. But you can visually see it in the separation of customers versus sites. So remember when I said make your product slippery? One of the things that that I could have said is make it self-service. We get our customers up and running to a point where they can build their own sites, deliver their own um, implementations of the product at their own pace. And so you'll get companies like Crocs, for example, that went live in literally a dozen countries on their own without us even touching uh, the software or or helping them. And so the number of websites has gone up exponentially. And each of those websites is generating more revenue, and of course we're taking a percentage share of it. That's leverage in your business model. So those are the kinds of things that hopefully you're seeing by example that that you want to try to reach for. So uh, let me summarize here. Hopefully what you've taken away from tonight is that you can have a very disruptive business model. It can be as disruptive as your technology, if not more so. You can do it in three simple steps. Number one, focus on your core differentiation. Number two, find multipliers from it. And number three, get levers on it that take the cost out. And I gave you some examples of how you could do that with co-creation. You had a great example from Dries in in how he's done it with open source. But there are many ways you can do that. You can do it with strategic partners, which we didn't go into tonight. But you'll find information up on the website about that. We covered it last time. Uh, And with a couple of ideas like Russian doll packaging and, and slippery products. And in the end, if you do all of those things and you think about it right up front, you genuinely can design for a business that has A very long life cycle value and very low costs of both acquiring and retaining customers. And they'll give you huge valuation uh, as an output. So I'll pause there. And uh, thank you all for taking the time. Thanks to our guests, too.